So the passage for today is Luke chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 21. And once you are there, if you would please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will, pre will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee into their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. So Luke chapter two, uh, you might have joined us for the introduction and the first few uh, verses in Luke. I can't even really say first few chapters because we've only been through one of them. Um, and then we took a break and we went into the Psalms. So while, as we're getting back into Luke, I want to remind us of where we've been, where we've come from, the purpose of Luke. And then from there, we can move forward into the text today. So where we came from, what is Luke about? Remember, Luke was written by Luke, the doctor, the accompaniment of Paul. And it was written to a man named Theophilus. He addresses the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And the reason he writes the letter is in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is convinced that with an accurate historical retelling of what happened at the time of Jesus' birth, his life, his earthly ministry, and ultimately his crucifixion and resurrection, that Theophilus would become convinced and confirmed of the things he had already been taught by the disciples. 
So Luke sets out to write this orderly account. He says, I have followed all things closely. I've interviewed many witnesses. I'm going to go ahead and write to you an orderly account. And his orderly account starts with a prophet named Zechariah, who serves as the first eyewitness of the coming Messiah. Zechariah gets an angel who appears to him, and the angel says that the silence of God is about to break, a forerunner is coming, and the forerunner precedes the Messiah. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. He gets cast into silence. Zechariah's wife hears about it, Elizabeth. She prophesies over Mary, saying that Mary, the child in my womb, has left, and truly you carry the Savior. Mary gets a vision from an angel. Mary is told that she is going to conceive and bear the Son of God. Joseph doesn't believe initially what's going on with Mary, and we know from Matthew's account that Joseph has a private revelation from an angel as well to confirm that what was told to Mary is true, that she didn't go and become out of, uh, have a child out of wedlock, that she was unfaithful, but rather that this is a miraculous conception. And then in this text, we get the birth of John the Baptist, so the forerunner now has arrived, and then the last thing that we read as a group together was that Jesus has now arrived. Remember, earlier in Luke, just, just in the verses preceding this text, Jesus is born. The angels show up and preach to the shepherds that the child has come who's to save the world. And now we find ourselves in a transitional statement right after that Savior has come. So this is the orderly account. This is what Luke has sought to teach us so far. And so we pick this up in verse 21. But in this text, you notice we're introduced to two new eyewitnesses. We've already met Mary and Joseph. We've already met the shepherds. We've already met the angels. We've already met Gabriel, the angel who shows up individually to those people. Now we're introduced to two new people, Simeon and Anna. And their eyewitness accounts come in very crucially because now you have people who aren't relationally close to Jesus. You have now people who couldn't possibly have known who Jesus was that meet him randomly and testify about who he is and what he is to do. And you also have a third eyewitness in this text, and it might not be so obvious at first, but for the first time, Luke begins to introduce to us the eyewitness of the law. You see, when the Messiah comes, he needs to fulfill the law perfectly, because you and I do not fulfill the law of God perfectly. In James 2.10, it says, if someone keeps the whole law, but yet stumbles at one point, he is guilty of all of it. So it's not good enough to keep 90% of the law or 99% of the law or 99.999% of the law. You need to keep the law perfectly. And there's no other person who keeps the law perfectly other than Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in this text why that is so. And so Luke introduces to us the eyewitness of the law. And so those are really the three things that you're going to see in the text this evening. You're going to see the testimony of the law. You're going to see the testimony of Simeon. And then you're going to see the testimony of Anna. And all three of these serve as witnesses to talk about Jesus, to talk about who he is, and to talk about what he came to do on this earth. So then in verse 21, we are introduced to the testimony of the law. And if you'll read with me, it says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So first and foremost, Jesus is born. And according to the law, according to the code that God passes down to his people, a child who is born an Israelite must be circumcised on the eighth day. And if you want to know where that comes from, it's from Genesis 17, where God shows up to Abraham and tells him that all the children of the covenant are to be circumcised on the eighth day. In Genesis 17, and God said to Abraham, 
As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign between the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought up with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So God tells Abraham that this picture of circumcision has to do with the keeping of the law, the keeping of the covenant, which he makes with Abraham. And then we see here in Luke's account that Luke, a Gentile, writing to Theophilus, another Gentile, doesn't neglect the Jewish law. He doesn't say, for Jewish people this is important, but for Gentiles it doesn't matter so much. What he says, pay careful attention, Theophilus, in my orderly account, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That's not a cultural tradition, that is the law of God, which means something very important, which is that if there's ever a perfect person on earth who's not been circumcised, they've fallen short of the law. They've missed the mark of perfection. And you might say, how is that so? How is that fair? Well, first off, God gets to make the rules about what is and what isn't fair. And also, this picture of circumcision has far more than just sanitary implications. You see, there are many people who argue back pragmatically about the text and say this is really God looking after his people and trying to keep them free of disease and other ailments that could happen if you are uncircumcised. But that's a, a total miss of what's going on here. You see, circumcision is a sign of God's faithfulness to his people, his covenant with Abraham. But circumcision is far more than that. You see, in the text of Scripture, circumcision is a picture of what it means to be set apart for God. God's chosen people are circumcised, and so God says, if you are circumcised, this is how I tell you apart from non-believers. This is how you identify with me as my people. And if you are my people, I am your God. That's how he identifies himself. Circumcision in Genesis paints us a picture of fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. And so then the question of circumcision goes even deeper than that, though, because remember, the Abrahamic covenant comes after what happens with Adam and Eve. And in the original fall, we know that sin enters through Adam and passes on to all of his offspring. So circumcision is a literal, physical picture and reminder of the fact that through your offspring is how sin is passed. Through your offspring, through the passing on of your generation, that's how sin passes from one generation to another. And so here we see it later with Mary. She's presented in the temple for purification. Women would, after they gave birth, go through the rite of purification to cleanse themselves. This is the female equivalent of the Jewish picture of circumcision. So both male and female are reminded through these practices that God is reminding them original sin dwells in your DNA. And this is a constant reminder of the fact that every time you have a child, you have passed on your sin nature to that child. And that no one is free of sin. As David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so here we see that Jesus is circumcised. And then a question comes up, which is if Jesus was sinless, and he was, 
why does he have to get circumcised? Because he is without sin. So circumcision is not Jesus identifying himself as a sinner. And so how do we reconcile that Jesus was circumcised? Well, if you look in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says that he needs to be born under the law. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So Jesus submits himself to the Jewish law. Jesus submits himself and identifies himself with sinners born under the law so that he could redeem those who are under the law. Jesus, through circumcision, identifies himself with sinners. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. You can also see a very similar picture of this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 2, 16 and 17 go like this. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He referring to Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God, who makes propitiations for the sins of his people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning he had to identify himself with the brethren in every respect, meaning he endured temptation, as the Hebrews passage refers to. But also beyond that, he had to be circumcised, and he identifies with sinful people, not because he himself is a sinner, but because he himself is going to be the substitute for sinners. So Jesus, through his circumcision, identifies that he is not coming to break the law of God, he's coming to fulfill the law of God, and also that he's not putting away and he's holy and sinners over there. He identifies himself with sinful people. And that's good news for you and me because if you're living in the Western world, typically you aren't circumcised on the eighth day. Typically you grow up your whole life sinning and going on sinning and your desires are sinful. And so it's a good thing that there is one person who has perfectly fulfilled the law because you and I are probably out of the game before we even get to know that the law exists. You and I probably don't even know in all the ways we've fallen short. And then we read something in Scripture and we go, oh, Jesus says if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. If you resent people, that's a form of hatred, you've committed murder. And he elevates the law. And if you're a Jew and you get to that part of Scripture and you realize you've fallen short of the law, now you're in trouble because now you're disqualified from being perfect. And the law doesn't demand good. It doesn't demand better. It doesn't even demand best because the best of a bunch of sinners is still short of holiness. It demands perfection. It demands perfection. So circumcision, a reminder of original sin, a reminder of the covenant. Christ gets circumcised on the eighth day to identify himself as a sinner. He also gets circumcised to identify himself as a son of Abraham. The Messiah who was to come is to be an offspring of Abraham. So he identifies himself as a Jewish person and that's good because the Savior is going to be a Jew. Messiah is going to be a Jew. And then the third thing that circumcision, physical circumcision represents, is an inward posture of holiness. Remember, Paul makes the argument in Romans that circumcision is not circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. And you might think Paul made that up after Jesus came along, but if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Deuteronomy 10, 16, you'll see that that is not the case. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, 
Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be stubborn no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done this great thing and terrifying things that you have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. He's listing off God's qualifications and he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And what does that mean? It means become obedient. Love God, not from an external manifestation of obedience, but from an internal reality of obedience. In Jeremiah chapter four, verse four, you can see this. We read this this week on the M. Shane plan. Jeremiah chapter four, verse four. Jeremiah says, Break your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So he says he recognizes the evil deeds. Jeremiah recognizes the evil deeds of those people. And he says, your problem isn't the fact that you aren't externally circumcised because he's talking to Jewish people. He says you have to circumcise your heart, which means you, don't, you have to stop pretending to be externally obedient and it has to become an internal reality in your heart. Jesus Christ, through his external circumcision, is painting a picture of the internal reality of what's true about his heart, that he is internally obedient to the Father and this manifests itself with outward obedience. You also see not only the obedience of Jesus in this text, but the obedience of his parents. In verse 21, he was called... Jesus. His parents name him Jesus. They remember what the angel said. They believe what the angel said, and they name him Jesus. Jesus meaning Yahweh saves. It's the equivalent of the name of Joshua in the Old Testament. Yahweh saves. And this is the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Remember, the angel predicts this is going to happen. And so his parents follow through. They become obedient people. And so here we get the picture that Jesus isn't coming to break the law. He's not coming to destroy the law. He's not coming to undo the law. He's coming to perfectly fulfill the law. And the question is, why should you and I care about a Jewish person getting circumcised thousands of years ago? The reason you and I should care about that is because that circumcision is part one of a lifetime of obedience that leads to a perfect man who dies in the place of imperfect people. Jesus Christ had to be perfect, and Luke, in his orderly account, knows this and argues for it. He says that he was perfect starting with his circumcision. Starting from the very beginning, Jesus Christ was perfect, and this only continues. He grows in perfection in his life. But this is important for us. This is very crucial for us because if he had not been perfect, then you and I are without hope. Because the standard doesn't change if Jesus doesn't exist. The standard remains the same. The standard remains holiness. Remember, the law was set before Jesus even came around. The law was set before Jesus came manifest on earth. And so if the law was there, the standard was there, the standard being perfection. And so Luke makes careful, takes careful aim to show us that Jesus did, in fact, fulfill the law, beginning with his circumcision 
and going onward. He was an example of what it looks like to have perfect obedience. But this continues. We see not only the obedience of Jesus, not only his parents and his naming, but also the faithful obedience of his parents in presenting him to the temple. You see in verse 22, And the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here Jesus' parents show up to the temple. They're staying around for a while because this purification ceremony takes place 33 days after the circumcision. So they're in Jerusalem for over a month now. Displaced, they're not doing their jobs because Joseph is a carpenter, which means he can't you know, ship stuff over back home to sell it. It's not like online marketplaces. So he's taking heavy financial losses. He's living and posting up in Jerusalem, and he's doing so because they are going to remain faithful to the law. They have to do the purification ceremony, and they have to present Jesus in the temple to commend him as set apart to the Lord. There's two Old Testament texts that refer to that. The first one is quoted here in verse 23. It says, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's Exodus 13, verse 2. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. You remember that there was a Levitical priesthood in Israel so that God doesn't take all the firstborn of every single person. He only takes the tribe of Levi, renders them for perfect service unto himself, and that every other tribe gets the exemption. So when they, other tribes, present their firstborn, they present the firstborn, dedicate them to the Lord, and then they pay five shekels ransom or dedication price to acknowledge that they are Taking, whole, taking part in the system that they acknowledge that the Levites stand in their place as being set apart for the Lord for service. So that God doesn't take the firstborn of every family, he just takes all of the Levites. And he says that these are my representative firstborn. Jesus and Joseph and Mary, they're not of the tribe of Levi, they're of the tribe of Judah. So when they do this presentation ceremony, they have to show up and pay five shekels. Now you'll notice it doesn't say here that they pay five shekels, but Luke is careful to sandwich this statement with according to the law of Moses and according to the law of the Lord. So we're not supposed to assume that because he didn't say five shekels here, that they somehow presented him but didn't do the five shekels part. He's reminding us constantly, he says it five times in this text, that they do these things according to the law. They do them in perfect obedience. They do them perfectly. This is an act of obedience. So here, the first thing, they present Jesus, they, pay, they present him to the Lord. And then the other part of what they have to do is Mary needs to be presented for purification as well. She's just had a child. And part of what it commands in Leviticus chapter 12 is that if you've had a child, you need to present an offering on your behalf because now you are considered unclean. And if you'll turn with me there to Leviticus chapter 12, it's a very short chapter in Leviticus. It talks about this purification ceremony, the purification after childbirth. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying that if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So there it is again in the law. And then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. 
And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, and here we know that Jesus is a son, so it's 33 days, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So there's two offerings that are presented, the burnt offering and then the sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. She shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And then verse 8 is pretty important here. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So here you have the picture that according to the law, Leviticus 12, Mary and Joseph follow that to a T. They follow it perfectly. And we can see in this text from the quote that Luke chooses from, he chooses the back half of that quote, Leviticus 12, 8. He says, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which means that we can see that Joseph and Mary, they're not part of the wealthy classes in society. Because the only way to get to the turtle dove and to the pigeons for both of your offerings is to be so poor that you can't afford a lamb. The other thing that we know from this is according to the the birth narratives that they haven't yet been visited by the wise men because if they'd gotten those gifts, they would have been so rich that they could have afforded all those other offerings. So we know that the wise men came at some point later in the birth narratives. So Joseph and Mary are poor. They haven't yet been visited by the wise men, but nevertheless, they are obedient and they offer a sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. This shows us that they are poor, but yet obedient. And this is important because, as I just said, they don't live in Jerusalem. They traveled here. They've stayed for eight days. And then 33 days after that, and now they're coming to offer these things in the temple. So obedience is hardly ever convenient. Obedience is hardly ever financially the wisest thing you could possibly do. Obedience sometimes seems like the worst possible decision. And yet, it is what God calls us to. Obedience is what God calls us to. Mary and Joseph, despite their poverty, despite the inconvenience of this, despite the fact that Jerusalem is a far journey from Nazareth, they decide that they're going to be obedient despite the inconvenience, despite the cost, despite the financial disincentives to do all these things. And they remain in Jerusalem, and they perfectly follow the law as it has been laid out. Obedience is hardly convenient, and yet Mary and Joseph see that convenience is no factor in order to become obedient to God. That it doesn't even matter to them. They're going to be obedient no matter what it costs. And so here you have the picture of the faithfulness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph to circumcise Jesus on the eighth day, to present him, and to offer all these sacrifices. So Luke has now given us the first of those witnesses, the testimony of the law. And in verse 25, we're introduced to the second of those witnesses, the testimony of Simeon. And the description of Simeon is very simple. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's the description we get of Simeon. We don't know his job. We don't know how old he is. All we know Simeon dwells in Jerusalem, that he's considered righteous and devout, and that his name is Simeon. That's all we get about him. But nevertheless, the most important things to know about this witness is he's reliable. He's a faithful person. 
he's considered righteous and he's considered devout. And importantly for Luke's case, he doesn't know Mary and Joseph. He's not related by family. It's not like Elizabeth and Zachariah who there's a family connection there. He is completely removed from this family, which means the following testimony that he gives about Jesus is all the more miraculous because the Holy Spirit isn't just moving and a few people have conspired together to make up this birth narrative. Now we get the testimony of someone who's not even connected to them, who lives in a different part of town, who they've never seen before, who randomly bumps into them in the temple by God's providence and gives the following testimony. Simeon, in verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that is, as they're going to the temple to do those above sacrifices that we just read about, he took him up, Simeon takes up Jesus in his arms and blesses God. Simeon, it was revealed to him that he is going to see the Lord's Christ. He is waiting for the deliverance of Israel. It says here for the consolation or for the comfort of Israel. God is Israel's comforter. And Simeon, waiting for Israel's comfort, identifies Jesus embraces him, recognizes him as the very person who's going to bring about the comfort of Israel. So here begins the amazing, incredible witness of Simeon. And he takes up and embraces Jesus in his arms, and he has the following prophecy. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And then he continues his prophecy, turning to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So he gives this prophecy to Mary. Now, you'll notice I disincluded that parenthetical statement there. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to talk about all of the prophecy of what Simeon says about Jesus. Remember, he doesn't know him, so the only way he can know this, and we're told this in the text, that the Spirit comes upon Simeon, reveals these things to him. He enters the temple under the influence or in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he encounters Mary and Joseph, embraces Jesus. Remember, in the Spirit, embraces Jesus. He's able to divinely recognize him as the Messiah with no picture evidence. It's not like he got a message ahead of time. He randomly sees this child, embraces him, and then does this amazing prophecy over him. And you can imagine the scene, Mary and Joseph, this strange person walks up and grabs their kid. Yeah. Kind of a strange scene. <laughs> and then he has this amazing prophecy. As a parent, you're probably pretty nervous when a stranger just walks up to you and takes your kid. And now it's like, oh, this is a safe stranger. He's not gonna like, you know, <laughs> run with him away or anything like that. And so here, you have Simeon making the following claims. He says to God, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now that is referring to what we learned earlier about Simeon, that Simeon was revealed to by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. So Simeon grabs Jesus and the very first thing he says is, God, thank you, I can now depart in peace, meaning, He's identified this child as the Lord's Christ. This testimony, this statement here, is very similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 8. He says to young Timothy at the eve of his death, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Simeon embraces Jesus. He loves the appearing of God. And he, in a very short way, gives that same testimony. Now he can depart in peace. His time is up. He has fought the good fight. He has waited for Israel. He has waited for God to deliver the people. And now he has seen the deliverance. And just like Paul, just like all faithful Christians at the end of their life, there's no fear. There's no worry. There's no concern. There is only confidence that I am now being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I can depart in peace. Not in nervousness, not in concern, not in worry for the future, not in worry for your children or your assets or the things of this world. You can depart in peace knowing that you are going to be with the Lord one day. Simeon says that these things, him departing in peace, is according to your word. He identifies the Spirit's personal revelation to him as the very word of God. And this is a time when the Spirit is mightily active in the New Testament era. Remember, he shows up to Zacchaeus, and the Holy Spirit just kind of keeps rolling. And you have all kinds of prophecy, all kinds of signs, all kinds of wonders, all kinds of miracles happening. And this is the very word of the Lord that goes forth from these people. And notice, God always acts in accordance with his word. God's revelation, his private revelation, his public revelation, his public ministry, that's always in accordance with his word. He doesn't do anything outside of what he's already revealed to us he's going to do in scripture. So if ever someone starts off with a statement, well, I think God is like this, or I think God would behave in this way, the simple question is, well, where do you see that in scripture? Or where do you see that according to the Bible? Because we have a canon of 66 books that reveals God's word to us. And so anything that contradicts scripture is not the word of God. Anything that is not in this book and contradicts this book is outside of God's revealed word. And we know that God acts always in accordance with his word. We must let the text, not our personal speculation, drive our theology. We can't say, I wish God to be like this, or I think God is like this, or dwell on heavy moments of thinking and spend lots of time, energy, and effort on things the text doesn't emphasize. You need to let the text drive your theology. You need to let the text drive your curiosity. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit doesn't speak anymore in the way he has spoken. The prophecy and the apostles, they have ceased. And they are now recorded in these writings of those prophets, of those apostles, of those teachings. We have the revealed word of God. And so here, Simeon says, he speaks, he's going to depart in peace according to the word. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, identifying Jesus. He's literally looking upon Jesus when he says this. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And he noticed what he says next, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now the prophecy gets interesting because Simeon is a Jew who's waiting for the deliverance of the Jews. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And now his prophecy takes a turn. Remember, Luke writing to Theophilus is a Gentile writing to a Gentile. And so this part of Simeon's prophecy is pretty cool. He says, you've prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a light for glory to your people Israel. The people of Israel are included in Jesus' saving work. The Gentiles, too, are now included in the family of those who can be saved. Jesus comes first and foremost to the Jews. The gospel comes as the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile 
also to those of us who are outside of the family of Israel. Which is great, and the reason that's true is because the one who was born under the law has now perfectly fulfilled the law. And only a Jew could perfectly fulfill the law. So now that that person's come, this light of revelation has been developed, and now it can go in the presence of all peoples, a revelation to the Gentiles. The light of Jesus goes forth into all the world. And Jesus, when he resurrects, says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. And the reason he can say that is because he's come, he's fulfilled the law, and now it's you and I's job to go forth and bring this light to all people. The Gentiles get a special revelation through the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, and the people of Israel get to receive the glory. And what that means is the faithful Jews, the faithful Israelites, the ones who are waiting on God's redemption, they get to receive glory for the very words that are being spoken here because this is exactly what they are expecting. This is their king who's coming. And this is an interesting picture because later in Luke chapter 4, we get Jesus combating with Pharisees in the temple, Pharisees who claim to be righteous Jews. And we see here that Simeon, through just the revelation of the Holy Spirit, can embrace Jesus as the Savior. And the Pharisees, despite all of God's miracles, all of Jesus' mighty works, still reject him as being the Savior. So therefore, it is not on the basis of evidence, and it is not on the basis of more knowledge or more understanding about Jesus. It's on the basis of the Holy Spirit's revelation to the heart of the person that someone can be saved. That is how Simeon can embrace this child who he's never met before and call him Christ. And how the Pharisees can watch Jesus for three years of public ministry. And Judas can watch Jesus disciple him for three years of public ministry and still reject him. It is not on the basis of us being there with Jesus. It is on the basis of the Holy Spirit renewing our hearts to be sensitive to his working. And his father and his mother hear this revelation and they marvel because now they have the testimony not only of family, but also of a, distant of a distant person that they've never met before. And they marvel at this because this is a constant reminder of the truth of God's word. Mary and Joseph are humans just like you and I, which means the angel shows up and it's this mighty moment for them. And 33 days have now passed, so you've got to wonder, like, maybe it's waning a little bit for them. And now they're hit with another prophecy, and now they're encouraged again by what it says, and they marvel at what has happened. And then Simeon turns to them and has an additional revelation, an additional prophecy that he says. And he turns this time to Mary, not to both of them, but just to Mary. And he says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So there's two things that the child is appointed to do. He's appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now there's debate as to whether this refers to the same group of people falling, admitting their sins, admitting their wickedness, and then rising in glory with Christ, or whether it refers to two different groups of people, two different kinds of Israelites, those who fall, stumble over the stumbling stone, and those who rise, who identify Jesus as their Savior, and rise with him in glory. So there's debate as to whether it's two groups or one group. Most likely, this is referring to two different groups, because the rest of Luke's gospel testimony is that pretty much the first time someone bumps into Jesus, you can tell whether they're stumbling or whether they're rising. It's not, we don't get the picture of a Jew early in Luke's account who falls, you know, and then later in Luke's gospel comes to faith. It's pretty much the case that immediately upon seeing Jesus, hearing his testimony, they decide what they're going to do with him. And then they kind of play into that role for the rest of the gospel account. We get it as early as two chapters from now in Luke 4 with his encounter with the Pharisees. So this is likely referring to two groups, one that falls and one that rises. 
and he's going to be a sign that is opposed. That doesn't mean a sign necessarily that's rejected, but a sign that is stood against, a sign that is called out. And the Pharisees, you'll remember, say that he casts out demons not by the power of God or by the power of the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And they don't just seek to say that Jesus isn't actually the Savior. They seek to discredit him. They seek to subvert him. And they don't, it's not good enough for people to say that, you know, Jesus could be your Savior, but he's not my Savior. People, when they really recognize what's going on, stand opposed their whole lives to Jesus. They stand opposed, not for one moment of rejection, but for a lifetime of ongoing rebellion against God. And he turns to Mary during this statement. He says, by the way, this whole thing's going to happen so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Notice this is saying that the thoughts of many hearts, they're already present. The Pharisees right now, remember, appear to be the religious higher-ups. They appear to be the religious elite. And every Jew would have wanted to be trained by a Jewish Pharisee because they are the, seemingly the righteous group. And now you get this revelation from Simeon, and he says the hearts of many will be revealed, meaning they're going to be exposed for what they are. They're going to be exposed. And this is not just the case with the Pharisees. It's the case with the Zealots, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. They're all going to be exposed for what they are. And only the righteous faithful are going to be revealed for who they are, faithful to God. And he says to Mary that a sword will pierce your own heart also. If you have an NIV, they put that parenthetical statement at the end of the previous verses. That a sword will pierce your own heart also. This word sword means like a broad, double-edged blade. The thrust of what's being said here is that Mary is going to experience much pain and much suffering through the life and ultimately the death of her son. Through his opposition, through him being opposed by the Pharisees, she, being the mother of Jesus, more than any other person is going to suffer because of what happens to Jesus. She doesn't suffer more than Jesus. Jesus suffers most of all. But as a human, there's no other human who could have suffered as much as Mary because she is the very mother of Jesus. So not only do you have the intimacy of a follower, a disciple, but you also have the intimacy of a mother who watches her child crucified on a cross and who goes through all that pain. And here you have almost a prophecy of this earthly opposition and ultimately culminating in his crucifixion. And so therefore you have the testimony of the law, the testimony of Simeon, and now we get the shortest of the testimonies, the testimony of Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And you'll notice this is the shortest of the testimonies. We don't even get the prophecy that Anna provides. We really get like a one-sentence summary of the gist of what she's saying. But there's a few things to clear up about Anna. First and foremost, we get a few more details about who she is. We get her lineage. She's the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We get to know her age. She's advanced in years, although we don't know her exact age because depending on the translation of the translator, it's either that she was 84 years old or that she was first married and then divorced and that she remains as a widow for 84 years, putting her over the century mark. It really doesn't matter whether she's 84 or over a century old. She's old. She's a widow. She's dependent. And rather than, you know, enduring this lifetime of suffering, this lifetime of loneliness and being broken by it, we find through the suffering of Anna, one of the most faithful waiting people 
for the Christ. We see that she is in the temple worshiping by her fasting and by her prayer night and day. She is in constant worship. And this is to be contrasted with other people we're going to meet in Luke who seemingly are in better positions to encounter the Christ, who are seemingly better propositioned to know who this Christ is. And we meet this widow who's had a lifetime of suffering, who more than anyone else who we meet in this gospel has the chance to say, you know, I've endured enough hardship. There can no, be no God in heaven. There can be no one who's out there watching out for me. Certainly he's not powerful. Certainly, certainly doesn't watch over me. Certainly he's not good. And yet through her suffering, through her pain, we find one of the most powerful witnesses of the early Christ. She sees Simeon prophesying over the Christ and then she, she, can't, even, she can't hold herself back. She begins worshiping. She comes up and she gives thanks to God to speak to him of all who are waiting for the redemption in Jerusalem. So she just joins Simeon in what he's doing. But you see here that it doesn't matter, again, the circumstance. It doesn't matter the situation. What matters more so is the faithfulness, the endurance and the long-suffering that she endures to faithfully represent Christ. And so now you have three witnesses who's testified about this child, who he is, and what he's coming to do. Because she concludes in her statement that this child is for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she adds to Simeon's testimony. And then at the end of those three witnesses, we get kind of the close of this section, the close of this account. That now that Mary and Joseph have done all these things, now these prophecies have happened. In verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And now when they return to Galilee, we, we get this break for a large number of years. And all we get in summary from ages now until 12 years old for Jesus' life is the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now that statement is Luke's summary of Jesus' early adolescent years, his, his infancy all the way up until he's 12 years old. But what's most important about this, there's a lot of theology that comes out of texts like this. When, the, when it says that the child grew and became strong, the people begin to ask questions, well, if Jesus is God, how can he grow? How can he become strong? How can he change? And by God's grace, uh, in two weeks' time, when the verse in verse 52 talks about a similar sentiment, a similar summary statement, we're going to address all those issues, all those theology questions at that moment in time. So we're not going to have time for it now. We're running out of time as we speak. So we will do that in two weeks' time, Lord willing, and address it then. But suffice it to say that Luke has now summarized his account of the infancy narratives of Jesus' birth. And we, I'll remind you, have now had the pleasure of reading Luke's account of the inerrant immaculate conception of Mary, or immaculate conception of Jesus, the, the holy birth of the Christ, all of the legal testimony about him, and now we can have, at least in part, a beginning level of assurance that this Christ is who he says he is. He's going to do what he said he was going to do, and he accomplishes what he said he was going to accomplish. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, not because we are good in any way or because we have anything to merit for ourselves, but because you first loved us. You came down to this earth, humbled yourself, emptied yourself of glory, ultimately to the point of death on a cross. And we can glorify you in that because you have done that not for your own good, but for our good. You have left your heavenly throne and come down and rescued sinners who rebelled against you. You identify yourself with sinners. 
You love on us when we're in rebellion against you. And Lord, there is no better reason to praise and to worship you. Suffering is not a good excuse. Lack of knowledge is not a good excuse. Lord, you are worthy of worship and you always have been and you always will be. So I pray that in the coming moments we would be enabled to worship you mightily, bring praise and glory to your name, and lift a shout of praise to you because it is fitting and it is right that it goes your way. Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.